Thank you for those kind words, my dear brother. After that wonderful introduction, I cannot wait to hear myself speak. <laughs> it was extremely kind of Pastor Robert to give me this gracious invitation to speak to you all this morning. In fact, I don't know how many of you knew this, but there was originally another speaker who was scheduled to be here today. But as soon as Pastor Robert found out I was available, he quickly canceled John MacArthur. So what, uh, what can I say, you know? You know, the thing that excites me in being here with you this morning is knowing Pastor Robert, I know that his heart is passionate for the truth of the Word of God. You know, this lost world is constantly in search of truth. They're always looking for it here and there and everywhere. And all the while, it's right beneath their nose in the treasure house of God's Word, and they don't even realize it. A number of years ago, when I served full-time as a pastor, our church established a men's school of ministry through which we were going to train young men and send them around the world to minister God's word. And so we needed the perfect type of property in order to do that. So after much searching, we finally found one. In fact, it's in the city of Yerba Linda, directly across from the Nixon Library, if any of you have ever been there. And so after acquiring this property, we quickly realized that this place was kind of a cross between a dump and a junkyard. I mean, the place was radically dilapidated. You had broken down cars and tires and bathtubs, and I'm sure there were dead bodies somewhere on the property. And so we thought, wow, we've, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. So we started to clean the place up, and dump run after dump run, we finally got it in good shape. And then we looked around and thought, what about the landscaping? What do we need to do there? And so we did some stuff and then thought, are there any trees that need to be cut down? And after looking around, we realized that of all the trees on the property, there was only one tree that was an obstacle that we needed to cut down. And if you know anything about cutting trees down, after you cut the main part of the tree down, you, of course, have to remove the stump. And in order to do that, you've got to dig a ditch around the stump, pour water into the ditch, loosen up the roots, and then yank it out. So after cutting the tree down, we began to dig a ditch around the stump. And in the process of doing so, as the pickaxe penetrated the ground, we suddenly heard the sound of breaking glass only to look down and find wads of cash sticking out of the earth. 50 million, no, just kidding. <laughs> I saw some of you, you're like, what's that address? It was actually $2,200, but that was nothing to sneeze at because the bills dated back to the 1930s. And back in the 1930s, you could buy a new car for about six, $700. The average income was about... $3,800. You could buy a house for around $2,600. So $2,200 back in the 30s was a treasure. The man who said money doesn't grow on trees was right. He just forgot to look under them. And you know, I couldn't help but wonder that of all the people who lived on that property over the course of decades, how many of them maybe even sat on that very spot weeping about their financial woes when right beneath their nose was an indescribable treasure. Brothers and sisters, there's only one thing that is more devastating than not knowing that you have a treasure buried beneath your nose. It's knowing that it's there, but never digging it out and making use of its riches. I'm glad that this church is the type of church that digs out the treasure of God's word and presents it to you. My encouragement to you this morning is that you be determined in your heart to make use of its riches. Because if there's anything I've come to realize in my last 27, 28 years of being a Christian, 
It's that we often begin to neglect that which we're familiar with. The saying says, you know, that familiarity breeds contempt. I think sometimes familiarity also breeds neglect. We don't want this morning to just kind of be in cruise mode. We've done this so many times, sat in the same seats, looked in the same direction, did the same thing. We want this morning to come and engage with the living word of God that has the power to transform all of our lives as we leave here this morning. Determined not to be hearers merely, but doers also. You with me on that? Amen. Let's pray and open God's word together. Father, what an honor it is to be here with my brothers and sisters this morning. I ask that you would touch my tongue, that you would bless the power of the word to the hearts of your people. You would stir my own heart and mind to engage with what I communicate. Help us to all leave here this morning radically transformed by your glorious truth. We commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sure you've come to realize by now that you and I are living in a day and age where people are radically consumed with the theme of purpose. Purpose. In fact, purpose is all the rage these days. If you were to do a Google search on the most popular buzzwords in the 21st century, I wouldn't be surprised if you were to come to realize that the word purpose would perhaps be at the very top of the list. You're hard-pressed to turn on the television or to listen to the radio or to read a book or to hear a sermon where someone is not talking to one degree or another about purpose. It seems like every media personality, every social media guru, Every pastor, every popular speaker of sorts is consumed with this theme of purpose. Purpose, purpose, purpose. Everyone in life seems to want to know what their purpose is. And you know, that really shouldn't surprise us. It's not without merit because you and I don't serve a whimsical or capricious God. We serve a God of order and we serve a God of purpose who designed us as his creatures to be a people of purpose. Our purposeful purpose or purposely purpose that people should passionately pursue purpose. Try saying that 10 times backwards. And yet I've come to realize that tragically, even though there are so many asking that question, what is the purpose of man? Unfortunately, very few of the answers that are given today, at least by the popular modern personalities of our day, have anything to do with what the true purpose of man is according to the maker of man, really the only one whose purpose really matters for us. And so this morning in our brief time together, I want to answer that question for us. What is the purpose of man? And Before I do that, I want you to mark this well in your mind. The purpose of man is extremely, extremely, extremely simple. Unfortunately, we as people have a way of complicating the simple, but it doesn't change the fact that the purpose of man, according to God's description of it, is extremely, extremely simple. I'm going to give it to you now. Here it is, and I want you to note it well in your heart and mind. The simple purpose of man is to know his maker, be known by his maker, and make his maker known. So that others may know his maker as their maker, be known by his maker as their maker, and make the maker of him who made his maker known to them as their maker, known as the maker of others. 
so that others may know the maker of him who made his maker known as the maker of the ones who made the maker of the one who made his maker known to them as their maker, known as their maker, as their maker, and that they may also make him known to others who will in turn know him, be known by him, and in multiplicity to the degree of infinitude, make him known. Simple. <laughs> and in reality, it is. But as you just saw from that very pathetic and ridiculous example, we as people have a way of complicating the simple. No, brothers and sisters, the purpose of man, the simple purpose of man is indeed to know his maker, to be known by his maker, and to make his maker known. Now, we as Christians have absolutely no problem with the first two parts of that purpose statement. It's wonderful to be able to say that we know our maker and we are known by our maker. To be able to say, I know the maker of all things, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the one who uses the earth as its footstool, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is a consuming fire, the one before whom seraphim fly and cover their eyes and their feet and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I know him. We love that. That's not a problem for us. And we also love to be able to say, not only do I know him, but he knows me. He knows me so intimately that he fashioned me together while I was yet in my mother's womb. That he knows me by name. He knows the number of hairs upon my head. He knows my sitting down and my uprising. He knows me from afar. In fact, I will never hear those dreadful words in Matthew 7 from him. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I not only know God but God knows me. We have no problem with those. On an earthly level, you can relate. It's pretty cool, isn't it, when you know someone of great importance, someone famous, someone of extraordinary significance. It's, it's kind of cool to say, I know that person. Now, of course, we try to act humble as Christians when we say, you know, I know so-and-so, and we do that little, you know, humble Christian bow. But it doesn't change the fact that it feels good. And, and then when that person actually knows us, and it's verified that they really know us, that's pretty cool. One time I was with Pastor Robert in Hollywood. He's always boasted that he knows Arnold Schwarzenegger personally. So we were in Hollywood together, and Arnold was up on a stage, and he saw Robert, and he goes, Robert. And I go, whoa, he really does know him. Why are you stalking me? I put a restraining order on you. Ah, that's how he knows him. By the way, that was fully fictional. Made the whole thing up but I thought it would fit good in the sermon. But you know what I'm saying, right? It's great to be able to say we know God and God knows us. But brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, it's that third part of that purpose statement that we really have a hard time with to make our maker known. This is where things split apart here in relation to the analogy with knowing and, and being known by important people on this earth because People can see those people. They can hear their voices, right? There's something tangible to them. But when it comes to making our God known, who people can't see, whose voice they can't hear, we, we struggle with that, especially when we consider some of the hard things that we have to say to sinners. There are some wonderful things that we say to them about Christ's love and, and Jesus giving his life for them and, and the grace of God. But there are some hard things we have to say. So I want to ask you all here this morning, honestly, how many of you, when you think about those hard things that you have to say to sinners in the process of making God known, how many of you feel nervous when you 
consider walking up to a perfect stranger or even a family member, which sometimes is even scarier, and telling them that they have violated the law of a holy God, that there's coming a day of judgment where they will face the wrath of God, and if they don't repent and place their faith in Christ, they will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Honestly, when you think of that, how many of you feel a twinge of nervousness rise up in your heart? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you, you know what the Bible says about liars. <laughs> but yes, you understand. You know what it's like. If you're like me, then you know what it's like. If you're like Ray Comfort, if any of you have heard of Ray Comfort, the founder and CEO of our ministry, you know what it's like to feel nervous. Now, of course, every church has that unique, special brother or sister who is one of the fearless ones. They call you up on a Saturday morning. They say to you, hey, brother, what are you doing today? You're like, oh, hey, brother, nothing much. Just, you know, hanging out, don't have any plans. Oh, great. You want to go hit the streets with me and share the gospel? <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> Um, oh, actually, um, oh, oh, I just remembered. Actually, I got, I got an appointment to get my hair cut today. But you're bald. Oh, I got to take my toupee to the dry cleaners. That's what it is. Now, look, unless you happen to be one of those unique, fearless ones, and you can relate to me and others when they say, listen, the thought of walking up to perfect strangers or going up to family members and telling them these hard things is terrifying and it's scary. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would much rather do anything else than share the gospel when it comes to spiritual matters. I would much rather hang out with Christian friends and fellowship. I would much rather come to a church service, hear the word preached, and worship the Lord. I'd much rather go to a Christian concert or to a men's retreat, or maybe you ladies can relate and say, I'd love to go to a women's retreat or a women's event, men's event, whatever. We'd much rather do that because those things aren't uncomfortable. And Remember, you're not alone. I have known the manliest of men who are terrified of sharing the gospel. Nothing else really scares them in life except that. I have a dear brother who actually used to lead evangelism outreaches in a big spotlight kind of way. And he used to be a police officer. He was in law enforcement. I mean, this guy is a man's man, Italian guy, real deep voice. I mean, we're, we're convinced most of the earthquakes in California were caused by his voice. This guy is manly. His mustache is so big, it has its own zip code, okay? And this brother said to me, look, I would much rather on any given day be in a dark alley with a thug pointing his gun at my head than to walk up to a little old lady and share the gospel with her. So I share that to remind you again that you are not alone. But brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this. I said a minute ago that we would much rather be involved in anything else, spiritually speaking, than evangelism. But aren't you able to participate in the spiritual things that you participate in because at one time or another, someone to some degree or another shared the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with you? Isn't that why you're able to come into a church and, and hear the word preached and worship God in spirit and in truth? Isn't that why you're able to fellowship with other believers and, and listen to Christian music and, and go to Christian events? Isn't it because someone at some time communicated the glorious gospel of Christ to you, and it radically transformed your life. We are all partakers of the gospel. We are all the byproducts of the glorious gospel. But unfortunately, I think over time, we forget that. And we forget that a part of our purpose is not only to know and be known by this great God, but also to make him known so that others can know him like we do. 
and understand his sweet and wonderful fellowship and communion. Evangelism is perhaps one of the most important topics to be addressed today because the church cannot be all that it's called to be. You and I as believers within the church cannot be all that we're called to be if we're not fulfilling one of God's main roles for us by way of purpose as his people. We need to recognize that we were created to glorify God and to bring him pleasure through obedience. There's an archaic and very hated word in our day and age, obedience. But brothers and sisters, that is our calling as God's people. What does 1 John say? And this is love, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Our passion as God's people should be a glad and joyful obedience because it's connected with an understanding of the heart of our Father and his love for us that he sent Jesus to die for us when all he owed us was wrath and judgment, and he cares for us. So our heart's response should be, Lord, you saved me from hell and judgment and damnation. You made me yours. You blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You love me with an everlasting love. My passion, Lord, is to obey you and to bring you glory. That is the best thing for me, and I long and yearn to do it. And brothers and sisters, life is short. Time is ticking. My father, my biological father, this January 1st, turned 108 years old. I'm 83, but plastic surgery works wonders. <laughs> but really, my biological father just turned 108 years old. And I know we hear that and we think, whoa, that's just crazy. That's so long. But I assure you to him, it feels as if though it's been but a breath, the blink of an eye because time is passing. And when we finally arrive before the Lord on that day, we want to arrive there without regrets. We don't want to be an I wish I would have type of people. We want to be an I'm glad I did type of people. And when we arrive before the Lord, we recognize that it was all worth it. Because see, the things that are not cool to do in the eyes of men and women on this earth, like communicating the gospel and telling them hard and, quote, offensive things, the things that were not cool to have done in the sight of men and women on this earth will be the coolest things to have done when we finally stand before God and give account before him on that day. And we don't want to have regrets. I don't know how many of you here have ever seen that show, What Would You Do? It's a very popular program where they set up a scenario in a public place. They have hidden cameras. And they do a social experiment where maybe someone is being mocked or put down or, or something very unkind is happening to other people. And they put the cameras on people that are watching or unsuspecting. And then finally, at the end, John Quinones and his camera crew come out and they come up to the people who are watching. Some of them intervened and did the right thing. Others didn't. And it's almost without fail that in one way or another, the people who didn't do the right thing, who didn't speak up, will look into the camera and say, I wish I would have. And the people who did do the right thing, who did speak up, will in one form or another look at the camera and say, I'm glad I did. That's where we want to be when we stand before the Lord. We don't want to say, oh, I wish I would have, having wasted our time, having 
lost opportunities to be a light for him, having not cared about lost souls on their way to hell. We don't want to say, oh, I wish I would have, when suddenly we see that it all truly really mattered. We want to be able to say, I'm glad I did, as we fulfill our true purpose for the glory of God. And this morning we want to look at what God says about that purpose in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I was born in Lebanon back in 1975. Lebanon is that small Middle Eastern country to the north of Israel, and our native language is Arabic. So when I came here in 1980 at the age of about four and a half, I did not speak a lick of English. I think the only things I knew how to say were hello and give me chocolate. I was quite the chocoholic then. I still am now. And Shortly after arriving to these glorious shores, my parents put me into this very dangerous, hostile, violent, and deadly environment called kindergarten. And you can imagine what it was like when kids were walking up to me trying to speak to me in English, and I'm just like, what in the world? I didn't know how to say anything. And shortly after that, though, I, I fell in love with the English language, and I became really focused on it. And there have always been certain words or phrases or adages or, or even terms that became very dear to me. And one of those terms that I have loved for a long time and still love today is the term paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. When someone says paradigm shift, you know they're talking about having had a certain perspective on something, sometimes even for a very long time, and then suddenly they're given new information and their entire paradigm shifts, their entire perspective on that particular thing is suddenly transformed. There's a good friend of our ministry who told us about a very serious story regarding his brother who lived in Utah. A number of years ago, his brother was taken by a group of masked men with a knife into a back room. They knocked him out, plunged the knife into his chest, tore it open, and ripped out his heart. 
And the thing about it all is that there were people outside that room who knew exactly what was going on in there and did absolutely nothing to stop it. Now, let me give you a little more information. That group of masked men were heart surgeons. The masks were surgical masks. The knife was a scalpel. The back room they took him to was a hospital operating room, and they plunged that scalpel into his chest, opened it up, and ripped out his heart because he had a bad heart, and they replaced it with a good new one. Brothers and sisters, you all just collectively experienced mass paradigm shift. What went, what was at one point a gruesome murder scene immediately shifted into a life-saving mission. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is, if you would, a paradigm shift type passage. It has the power and the ability to completely transform your perspective if the truths of it truly penetrate your heart and mind. Paul begins in verse 9 by saying, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, listen, our aim in life as believers, our passion, our ambition, our heart's greatest yearning is to be well-pleasing to him. Our goal is to bring the heart of our God who gave us life and then gave his life for us to bring him pleasure in all that we do. The Lord has blessed my beautiful wife, Rachel, and I with five amazing children. And a number of years ago, I gathered them together in our home, in our living room, and I unveiled for them the Zwayne Family Vision Statement. I, I crafted a vision statement that would be a sort of signpost in our lives so that our children would understand where they're headed. And I unveiled this for them, and it reads like this, to gladly and passionately glorify God. In every thought, affection, word, and deed, while constantly enjoying him as our greatest pleasure and most precious treasure. I've memorized that. My wife has memorized that. Our children have memorized that. It's become the popular theme of discussion in our home. It's become the foundation for our family devotions. Because if there's anything that I want my children to know, their children to know, and their children's children to know, it's that they were created by God and for God. And their ambition in life is to glorify him by bringing him pleasure through obedience and through all that they do. My question to you this morning, as you think about your purpose in life as a Christian, as it relates to making your God known, it is, is that the very heartbeat to how you live? In general, and everything in life, do you ask yourself when you wake up in the morning, Lord, how can I bring your heart pleasure today? Through everything that I say, think, do, and feel, through my business involvement, through my career, through my leisure, through my friendships, my personality, my sense of humor, through my financial dealings. Lord, in everything that I do, how can I bring your heart pleasure? Because as Paul said, listen, all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, as believers, we know that we're not going to stand before God for judgment by way of condemnation. We've passed out of judgment into life. But we're going to stand before the what's called Bema Seat of Christ, where like in the Olympics, there's that seat of judgment where wreaths are given out as a reward. Are we going to stand before him on that day as we give account to him who, our God who loved us with such a deep and great and indescribable love, are we going to stand before him on that day 
being glad that we live for his glory and honor as we give account to him. Paul says our aim, our ambition is to please him. But Paul doesn't say this without merit. This is not a baseless command. It's rooted in a very important and deep reason. And he gives us that in verse 15. He says, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He died for all, Paul says, so that those who live, those who have now been made alive through Christ, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I have to say that there are certain things in Scripture that I am so familiar with, and yet their significance is lost on me. And that's tragic to know something so well that we don't think about its significance. I've memorized vast amounts of Scripture over the course of my lifetime and am very familiar with different parts of the Bible, and yet the true meaning is lost on me. It's what I call the John 3.16 syndrome. We're so familiar with it, it can roll right off our tongue, and we forget the significance of what it means. Brothers and sisters, do you grasp the import and impact of what Paul just said about what God did for us? And he died for all. We know the gospel. We understand, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but, but does the reality of that truly Come home to our hearts and minds. He died for us. Because unless you understand the significance of what God did, the significance of what it cost him to die for us, undeserving, wretched sinners who've done nothing but spit in his face through our sin, then we're not going to be a people who are passionate to please him. We're not going to be a people who are passionate to live out our purpose of not only knowing him and being known by him, but also making him known. And here's why. It's because value impacts behavior. How much we understand something is valued and how much we personally value it will determine how we act in relationship to it. As an example, if I were right now to hold up in my hand this rectangular greenish piece of paper that had Benjamin Franklin's picture on it, the words, in God we trust, and this note is legal tender for debts, private and public, you would immediately recognize that this little piece of paper is worth $100. Why would you recognize that? Why would you think that piece of paper is worth $100? Is it because of the paper itself? No. Otherwise, we would need a stack of paper all the way up to the ceiling to reach the value of $100. Is it the ink that is on that piece of paper that makes it worth $100? No, because otherwise you'd need buckets and buckets of ink, as Paul Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, so aptly describes. No, the reason why that little piece of paper is worth $100 and why you value it as such and why you treat it in accordance with that value is because you know the United States government has ascribed that value to that little piece of paper. And because you understand the significance of the United States government, you know that value is valid. You've seen what that does. And so you treat that little piece of paper accordingly. You don't just throw it on the ground. You don't, you don't just leave it sitting on your front porch. You don't just rip it up and get rid of it. You treat it with care. You save it up. You guard it. You treasure it. 
There's another little piece of currency that you're all familiar with. It's that little round copper thing that annoyingly jangles in your pocket with good old Abe Lincoln's image on it. And that's worth what? One penny. Why is that? Because we know the United States government has ascribed that value to it. And so it impacts our behavior. If you're anything like me, there are times when you're walking through town and you hear that little round copper thing fall out of your pocket and hit the ground. And sometimes you pause and you think, you know what? It's not even worth my time to crouch down and pick that little thing up. So you walk on. Do you ever do that with a $100 bill? If you do, let me know where you live. I'd like to hang out there for a little bit. Of course not. But guess what? If suddenly the United States government switched the value of those two currencies and that little penny became worth $100 and that $100 bill became worth one penny, you can be sure that your behavior would change in connection with those two pieces of currency. The first thing you would do is you would cry about all those pennies that you didn't pick up because you'd be a millionaire by now, right? And then you may start using that $100 bill to wipe your hands with or to use as a scrap piece of paper. Value impacts behavior. How much do we value the fact that he died for us? That the God of glory, who inhabits time and eternity in the hearts of men and women, that he condensed himself into the form of an itty-bitty man, walked this earth and was subjected to the blasphemies of his own creation. He was blasphemed by the very cords vocal cords and tongues and lips that he created, that he was nailed to a piece of wood that he created by spikes that were put together from the elements that he created in the earth. And in his love, he went to the cross and gave his life for us. Do we value that sacrificial act? Because if we do, it'll impact our behavior. As Ray Comfort often says, what he can't express in terms of his gratitude to God by way of words, he expresses by way of works. And we are his people, as the word tells us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared with him. He wants for us to be a ze- a, a, his own special people, zealous for good works, good works of evangelism for his glory. He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 17, therefore, because of this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're all familiar with this verse, but unfortunately, oftentimes we quote it in isolation or hear it quoted in isolation. But do you understand its context is in the midst of speaking about us making God known? That the old things have passed away. All things have become new. Therefore, that means that living for ourselves, living for our own pleasures is gone. We now live to please him. And we do this because we understand the value of what he did for us. We're a new creation. We don't live selfishly anymore. We live to please him. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is hugely powerful. Paul says, listen, 
God, the God who came down as a man and died for us through that death to save us, to live for his pleasure, no longer our own, which is destructive, he has reconciled us to himself, which means he has brought us back into right relationship again with him. As people, we were separated from God. We were enemies of God, hostile toward God, on our way to hell and damnation. He reconciled us, which means he brought us back into right relationship with him again and has now given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciled us and now tells us, hey, I want you now to go and to be a proclaimer of what I did in your own life. As I reconciled you to me, now you go and be my instrument of proclaiming reconciliation so people can be brought back in the right relationship with me again. And I have now called you my ambassador. Brothers and sisters, this is where paradigm shift comes into play for all of you in here this morning. If you are in here today and you're a born-again believer, you claim Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you identify as a child of God, you are right now at this very moment in 100% full-time ministry. What? What are you talking about? Uh, I, I, I thought full-time ministry was for pastors. I thought that was for Christian parachurch organization leaders. I thought that was for professional Christian counselors, maybe missionaries out on the field. What do you mean full-time ministry? I'm just an innocent bystander, man. Leave me alone. Brothers and sisters, if you are a born-again believer who's been reconciled to God, you have the ministry of reconciliation, and that is a full-time ministry. And on top of that, you've been given a specific title. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Paul, of course, here is writing as an apostle. He's speaking about him and the apostles having been given this ministry. And sometimes people think, oh, well, then I'm off the hook. I'm not an apostle. What's that have to do with me? Well, what does Paul tell us? To imitate me is I imitate Christ. The apostles were the foundation of the church. What does Ephesians 4 tell us? And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints. For what? For the work of ministry. What ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. The apostles laid the foundation and they pass on to us the mandate that Jesus gave to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That has not been done yet. There are still billions of people that have not even heard the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you are in full-time ministry, all of you, and you are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The question is, is how have you been fulfilling your ministry and what kind of ambassadors are you? See, you are as much an ambassador of Christ as you are a human being if you've been born to human parents. And I hope that's all of you this morning. You see, you are, you are as much an ambassador of Jesus Christ as you are whatever ethnicity that you are from the genetics that were passed down to you from your parents. I believe we're all from one race, but there are various people groups and we can identify ethnically from the traits we've received genetically. The question isn't what, whether you are uh, Caucasian or Hispanic or black or Middle Eastern. The question is, is what kind of black, Hispanic, white, Middle Eastern person are you? If you're in here today and you're a father or a mother, you've biologically brought children into this world, the question isn't whether you're a father or a mother. There are plenty that say, I don't want to be a father or a mother to these children, right? 
But the fact of the matter is you are and nothing can change the fact. The question isn't whether you're a father or mother or not. The question is, is what kind of father or mother are you? Brothers and sisters, you're in full-time ministry with the ministry of reconciliation. You're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The question is, is what kind are you? You know the amazing thing about our great and awesome God as it relates to our purpose is he never calls us to do anything that he doesn't equip us to accomplish. And I love this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that word prepared, especially when it's coupled with the word beforehand, and especially when those two words are combined with the word food. Oh, I love it. When my food is prepared beforehand. As you all heard, I grew up in a Middle Eastern home, and Middle Eastern mothers almost spoil their children to death. Because they do everything for him. And as a kid, I hardly knew how to make a sandwich. My brother, who's 14 years older than me, who was a millionaire in his 20s, but still lived at home, hardly knew how to do anything. And my mom saw that. So she saw me. I was still young. She thought there's still hope for him. She said, no. I come home and say, mom, make me a sandwich. What? Make yourself a sandwich. Right? You're, you're going to grow up and, and, and you're going to marry a woman. And no woman is going to feed you the way that I do. She was wrong as you can tell. And my beautiful wife still prepares my food beforehand, and, and I'm so grateful for that. I, I, can hardly, I can hardly still press microwave buttons. The only thing I know how to cook is water, and sometimes I even burn that. So anyway, I love it when my food is prepared beforehand. Years ago, we heard about this restaurant in town called The Melting Pot. I don't know if any of you here have heard of The Melting Pot, but we heard about this chocolate fondue that they have, right? And you know, I'm like, give me chocolate, right? I got so excited. I told my wife, we got to go to this place. So she made reservations and we went and sat down and I'm just so excited. I, I you know, I'm just, I can't wait to eat this stuff. And so we're looking and, and we order our chocolate fondue, but we also ordered dinner because they also serve food there. And so we're sitting there excited and just looking forward to the dessert. And next thing we knew, they start walking out with these pots full of raw chicken raw meat, raw vegetables. I look up at the waiter and he could tell I, I wasn't connecting with what was going on. He goes, oh, uh, you cook your own food here. I mean, I almost ran outside to look that it said restaurant, not culinary school on the building. Like, what, do you, what do you mean I cook my own food here? Don't people come to a restaurant so they don't have to cook their own food? I'm thinking of the evil genius in the back who hatched this maniacal plot, you know? Bring them here, make them cook their own food, charge them twice a normal restaurant. Whoa, you know, I was waiting for someone to come and escort me to the back to do my own dishes. You know, brothers and sisters, God does not do that with us. He doesn't say go out there and whip up your own good evangelistic works. He says, no, listen, I have prepared your good works beforehand that you should walk in. You don't have to muster these up. You don't have to craft them and create them and, and push to, to make these opportunities. I have designed them. All you have to do is walk in them. I've prepared your good works beforehand. 
Now, here comes paradigm shift number two. Second Timothy chapter two tells us that in a great house there are vessels of honor and dishonor. Vessels that are used for honorable purposes, others are used for dishonorable purposes. He says, listen, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, walks in repentance from his iniquity, he will be a vessel of honor, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Wow, wait a minute. In Ephesians 2, Paul told us that God prepares our works beforehand. Now here in 2 Timothy, he says, we can be prepared for every good work. And what happens when that takes place when every good work is prepared for you and you're prepared for every work, it means that as you go through life, whether it's with our family members at home or our relatives or whether it's with strangers that we meet on the street or whether it's with coworkers or good friends, as we walk along the path of life, there are these nicely, neatly prepackaged good works of evangelism that are prepared for us. And as we walk along the road of life, we are prepared. We're in good communion with the Lord. We're spiritually minded. We're eternally minded. We come into contact with these good works, and what happens is what I call this divine convergence. They come together at a perfect intersection that God has designed, and we enter into them, and something beautiful happens that brings the heart of God pleasure. We fulfill our purpose, not in just knowing God and being known by God, but then in faithfully making him known. And brothers and sisters, what an honor it is for us to be able to say that we know the true and living God, that we're known by him and that we can make him known, to be able to say, I was used by God. Those of you that have ever shared the gospel with someone and have seen the light go on or have seen someone come to know the Savior, you understand how awesome it is to have been an instrument in his hand. Before I became a Christian, one of the most awful things that a person could ever say is I was used. Whenever someone said, I was used, you knew that negative things were going to follow. But for us as Christians, is there any greater honor than to be able to say, I was used by the true and living God? See, our problem as Christians is oftentimes we don't recognize the significance that he has called us to be his ambassador. Why? Because we fall into the habit of making much of man and little of God. So we think, oh yeah, of course. Who else would God want to be his ambassador but me? Because we think we're great. You have to remember our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our depravity. And that a God's so holy and so good and so great and, and so beyond description would call us to be his representatives. That should blow our minds. But let me put that into perspective for you quickly. Listen, right now if a beam of light came shooting through the sanctuary at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, and we happened to have our saddle handy, and we jumped on this beam of light and flew through space at 186,000 miles, not per hour, not per minute, but per second. In a second and a half, we would be at the moon at that speed. In nine years, we would reach Alpha Centauri, which is, or in nine minutes, we would reach the sun, which is 93 million miles away. In four years, we would reach Alpha Centauri, which is the star closest to our solar system. But get this. If we hopped on this beam of light and flew through space at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, at that speed, it would take us 100,000 years to complete our journey across the Milky Way. Second and a half to the moon, nine minutes to the sun, four years to Alpha Centauri, but 100,000 years to span our galaxy. 
Saints, there are over 100 billion galaxies with over 100 billion stars in each galaxy. And the Bible says about our God that he spans the universe with his hand, that heaven and heaven, the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and yet he's called you and me to be his ambassadors. Wow. That should enlighten us, awaken us, give us a sense of sobriety, and yet a sense of honor that God would do that. Now, here's the thing. We have to recognize that even though sometimes we say, you know, I just can't do this. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of person who has the gifting and the ability and the know-how. It's just not, it's not me. We have to understand that it's God who gives us his power. And the power is in the gospel, not in us. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, we need to liken the gospel to a bomb. We need to liken our mouths to like a, a, a flying bomber in the air. He says, all we need to do is open the bay doors of our mouth and drop the gospel bomb and let it do its work. Power isn't in us. It's in his spirit and, it, it's, in, and it's in his powerful gospel. And sometimes we say, I can, I don't have the ability, I don't, but we do because we have his spirit. Years ago, I had a dear brother that I worked with when I was a teenager and I was a newer believer and I was passionate for the Lord and one day he said to me, Easy, I don't understand. How do you memorize scripture? How do you know things about Christianity so well? How do you share the gospel with people so boldly? And in the workplace, this guy was amazing in all that he did. And I remember I wrote him a letter and I said, Brother, let me ask you a question. He had memorized every price of every item in the store. I said, What's the difference between memorizing $3.16 and memorizing John 3.16? I said, what is the difference, because he had known the history of every product, of knowing the history of all the products in our store and knowing the history of the Christian faith, what's the difference between coming up to customers boldly and representing our store policy, which he did very effectively, and walking up to strangers and sharing the gospel with them? You know what the difference is? It's oftentimes an investment of our time and heart and energy. We are ambassadors for Jesus. How seriously do we take that calling? Can you imagine the U.S. sending an ambassador to another country who doesn't put time into understanding U.S. policy and understanding how to effectively represent the U.S. to the political leaders of that country? Can you imagine how much heart and time and energy? Sure, I know there's that spiritual dynamic of spiritual warfare. That I understand it. That that's a, a unique element that's a part of that. But when we rely on the Lord and we're more passionate for souls than we are about what people think of us, it impacts what we do for the glory of God. Finally, in closing, I want to share with you a few examples of divine convergence, of being prepared for every evangelistic good work and every evangelistic good work being prepared for us. And I share these to inspire you, that as you get into that place, you're going to experience the adventure and the true purpose of being a child of God. By God's grace, I get the privilege to travel all across the country in different parts of the world sharing God's word with people. And one of my favorite places to share the gospel with people is on, our, on airplanes. Because if you're 30,000 feet in the air and you're talking to someone about the gospel and they don't like it, all you have to do is simply say, hey, there's the door. <laughs> right? And one time, Ray and I were traveling to a conference and, and we were coming back and I sit down and I see a young man sitting next to me and and he was probably, I don't know, 18 to 20 and his name was Kellen. 
and I start talking with them. We talk about common general things in life, which is what you do when you meet people. You don't have to act like a weirdo. And, and then before long, I transitioned into naturally sharing my testimony with them. And then I shared the gospel. And he was very attentive and seemed real open. And so I reached into my back to pull out a DVD of one of our movies called Audacity to give to him. I thought he'd connect with this. He's a young guy. This is kind of in that direction. And, and I pull it out and I go, hey, would you like one of these? And then I look and I realize that it was actually a different DVD. I had brought other DVDs with me. And this one was called Genius about the life of John Lennon, one of the Beatles. And I had already pulled it out. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this guy, he definitely doesn't know who the Beatles even are, right? He's like 18, 20. I go, um, hey, have you, have you ever heard of the, the Beatles? And he looks at me and his eyes go as wide as saucers. He's like, are you serious? I can't believe you just said that. I'm a, I'm a huge Beatles fan. No, I'm an insane Beatles fan. I'm like, whoa, bro, let it be, let it be. All you need is love right now. <laughs> I go, I go, he goes, man, I can't believe this. He goes, I grew up all my life listening to the Beatles and, 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 and I love the Beatles. My brothers were into them and you, you made this? I go, yeah, I did. He's like, whoa, I mean, the guy almost flipped out, you know. Ray Comfort, meanwhile, is a few rows ahead and he happened to sit next to a young lady of Jewish descent. Ray Comfort is of Jewish descent. She was in the Air Force, and she was deathly afraid of flying. Yes, you heard that right. In the Air Force, deathly, deathly afraid of flying. What are we churning out in our Air Force, right? And, you know, Ray Comfort, those of you, have you ever seen him? He's, he's like five foot five. He's, he's this little fiery, passionate guy for the gospel. And, you know, sometimes some people need a little ray of hope. She needed literally a little ray of comfort. <laughs> All five foot five of him. So Ray shares the gospel with this young lady of Jewish descent who's in the Air Force who's terrified of flying, who needed a ray of comfort. And he finishes, and he looks at her, and he says, do you believe, Sister, do you believe what I just told you about Jesus being the Messiah? And she looked at him, and she said, now I do. We get off the plane, exchange stories, and then I felt something wasn't right. I opened my phone, and I looked at our original seating assignments. I was supposed to be sitting in 20A, and Ray was supposed to be sitting in 20B. But being the dunces we are, we signed in on different kiosks, so it switched our seats and put us in two different places. Me, by the young guy who is an insane Beatles fan with a Beatles DVD, and Ray of Jewish descent with a young lady who was of Jewish descent who needed a little ray of comfort sharing the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do you think that was by accident? No, that's what we call divine convergence. Our evangelistic works prepared beforehand, we're prepared for them. In a, per in a perfect point in time and space, God brings them to converge for his glory. There are so many more stories that I can share with you this morning in that regard, but time is escaping us. I share that to tell you that you can be an instrument in the hand of God. And I want you to listen right now. There's a video that they have queued up back there. I want you to, to listen to this atheist. Those of you in here have heard of Penn Jillette. He's a very famous atheist who hates Christianity, who detests the Bibles. He rips Bibles up sometimes on television and, and in public appearances. But one day he was... Uh, after one of his shows, uh, a man came up to him and gave him a Bible as a gift. And I want you to listen to what this atheist who can't stand Christianity, what he says about the importance of Christians sharing the gospel with people. If we have it queued up, let's go ahead and please play. I'm inside Crawford Street. And he handed me a uh, Gideon Bible. It's a 
pocket edition. Um, I thought it was in the New Testament, but also thought it was Psalms in the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms, just part of the New Testament. The little book about this big, this thick, you know. See, so I remember the fun of it. And I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. So he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm saying I'm not crazy. So he looked me right in the eye. He did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth Telling on this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people should cross the dice, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not cross the dice? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed, you know, shut it out, that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where it's happening, and this is more important than that. Wow. From the lips of an atheist, how much do you have to hate someone to believe in the reality of heaven and hell and not tell them how they can avoid hell and go to heaven? Ray Comfort has had a special place in his heart for Pendulette for many years. And years ago, he prayed, Lord, I'd love to share the gospel with Penn We had a friend who was a magician who knew Penn, and he said he would try to arrange it, but it didn't work. Ray thought, well, Lord, I guess you don't want me to share the gospel with Penn A couple of years ago, we produced a movie called The Atheist Illusion, and in it, we interviewed a man named Lawrence Krauss. We were scheduled to interview him in Washington, D.C., where they were having a big atheist rally. So we flew out there. We get out of the car, and Penn um, Lawrence Krauss comes up and introduces himself and says, Ray, I want you to meet one of my friends. Walks him over. And there's Ken Gillette. And Ray goes, wow, Lord, I guess you do want me to share the gospel with Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette's about six foot six or so. Ray Comfort's five foot five. So he really only met his knees. <laughs> so anyway, we go up to the hotel. We do the interview with Lawrence Krauss. It's over. And, and then Ray is sitting there. And, and Penn Gillette said something to Ray. And Ray goes, Penn, why don't you come and sit here? I'd love to interview you. Thinking, man, I'll be able to share the gospel with him. Penn says, no. Ray says, come on. Penn goes, no. So Ray gives up, and he goes, oh, well, Lord, I guess you didn't want me to share the gospel with him. So then we leave the hotel. We go downstairs. We're standing outside. We're, we're getting ready to leave. And all of a sudden, Pendulette walks out of the hotel, walks right up to Ray, and begins to ask him questions about Christ. Ray spent 30 minutes sharing the gospel with Pendulette on the streets of D.C. And in the midst of that, Ray reminds Penn of this video that he had made. He says, Penn, you remember that video he made? He says, 
10, right now I am tackling you. There's a vehicle coming for you, and I am tackling you because this is that important. Ray finishes sharing the gospel with him. Penn Jillette begins to walk across the street with his friend. All of a sudden, I was standing there. I hear the loudest screeching of tires. I look up. I see Penn Jillette and his friend standing there in a daze. A car was this close to hitting them. In fact, Penn later talked about it on the radio, and he said the, the car actually hit his friend's pant leg. And I thought, thank you, Lord. God has a way of bringing about divine convergences. That work was prepared beforehand. Ray was prepared for it, and it came together. And guess what we found out later? That man that he was talking about in the video that gave him the Bible was a very close friend of our ministry. And the Bible he gave to him was a Bible we produced for our ministry called the Evidence Bible. How awesome is our God? Brothers and sisters, you are ambassadors for Christ. You have a full-time ministry of reconciliation. You need to know your maker. You need to be known by your maker. And you need to make your maker. Thank you so much. God bless you.